0: My name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Uh, this is today is what is it? it's Tuesday, March 19th, 2019, starting at 5:38 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 198th episode of the show. Uh, in this episode, I'm going to be talking with uh, Benjamin Dykes about his new translation of the work of the 9th century astrologer Ibn Bisher. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by be- becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Uh, hey, Ben, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me back. All right. So uh, I'm. At, this is episode 198 of the Astrology Podcast, and you actually joined me for episode 2. You were my very first guest on the podcast, I believe, way back in episode 2 in 2012 when you had just published... Choices and Inceptions, which was your translation of works on medieval electional astrology, right?
1: Wow, is it that that far back? Okay, yeah, I remember. Yeah,
0: apparently. <laughs> uh, so you've been busy in the meantime. Uh, I asked you yesterday like, how many works you had translated over the past decade, and I think the number you came up with was like 18, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. All right, well, let's jump into this discussion. So like I said, your your first appearance was on episode number two. You've published 18 books over the course of the past decade, and they've largely been translations from Latin, uh, Arabic, and more recently Greek. And part of your background for those that don't know about you or aren't familiar with your work is that you actually took Latin in high school, uh, and that was part of your, your background in, in ancient languages. And the very first book that you translated um, and, did a, and published, your very first book was a translation of the 12th or 13th century astrologer Guido Benati, right? Mm-hmm, right. Okay. And how many years did that take you to, to do?
1: I want to say it took me a year to translate to a rough draft and then a year to edit to put into final form. Okay. And that was
0: two big, thick books. Like How many pages was that in the end? Something like 1,500 pages. Yeah. Okay, and that came out, I think, in what two thousand seven? Two thousand seven. Okay. Uh, so then after that, that was like your first sort of entry onto this, into the world stage as an astrologer. Um, I think it was the following year, in two thousand eight, you published your second book, which was uh, Works of Saul and Masha Allah, which is a compilation of translations of the eighth and ninth century, ninth century astrologers Saul Ibn Bishr and Masha Allah, right? Right. Okay. And um call that it was... the, red, the Red Book. The Red Book. That's what I call it yeah. as well. That's still my <laughs> favorite book because it's one of the most important because um, those two figures, um, where they were living was right at the beginning of the medieval astrological tradition uh, just coming off of like a few centuries earlier, the end of the Hellenistic tradition, which is the one mm-hmm. that I specialize in. So that was way back in 2008. And you translated those texts from Latin at that point, right? Right. Okay. And um, because those texts, even though those two authors wrote the texts in Arabic originally in the 8th and ninth centuries, those were later translated into Latin and then later astrologers in like the 17th century like William Lilly drew on those Latin translations mm-hmm. from the 12th
1: century of those 8th and ninth century Arabic texts. Right. What we know about them comes from those early Latin translations or what we have known about them comes from those early Latin translations, and they uh, were very central to medieval and uh, early modern European
0: astrology. Right, but they were sort of filtered through those Latin translations. And initially, for those first few years, it's like you did Benadi at first, and then you did Saul and Masha'allah and translated a compilation of their text from Latin, and then you kept translating a bunch of other medieval astrological works from Latin. Uh, but then at some point in the early 2010s, earlier part of this decade, you decided to learn Arabic, right? Right. And when was that?
1: It, um. Well, I had been teaching myself to some extent, and then I got a grant from the Urania Trust to take uh, Arabic at the university. So I believe that was in 2012. Uh, okay. And so right after that, I was ready to start on uh, the Arabic translations. Okay. So you
0: started uh, learning Arabic and what was the the purpose of that was kind of to bypass the Latin translations or the Latin intermediaries that you had been translating up to that point and instead go back to the original source language of some of these texts.
1: Yeah, um because although I love Latin and I loved translating the Latin works, I was realizing that well like you said there were things that were kind of filtering into the Latin and things that were being filtered out. And I wanted to get a more original approach. And at the time I was starting to collect some Arabic manuscripts too. And I realized uh, how much is really out there that was never put into Latin. And so we'll still be, you know, quote unquote, new for people um, to read today. So I realized this was the time to do it and that's where i wanted to direct my attention okay so yeah it's like with some of those latin texts
0: there are like some instances where the arabic text the arabic original was lost and only the latin text survives but in a lot of instances the arabic the original arabic text is still floating around and so it almost makes more sense to go back to the original because then uh, i mean what are some of the downsides of not going back to the arabic but instead
1: translating from the latin well, in some cases you don't always know why exactly the Latin translator is using certain words. Um one of the things that um one of one of the words uh that came to be very important is the word cadent. Um it turns out that that word in Latin, which means falling, to fall down or falling, um that word cadent was almost exclusively the only word used by the Latins and it actually translates several terms in arabic all of which have different meanings so the arabs and the persians were being very careful about some of their terminology but it all got sort of um uh, pay- painted over or or um all of those distinctions kind of got smeared in the uh, latin translations so going back to the original vocabulary is starting to open up uh Open up new new uh, paths of research and new interpretations for chart reading.
0: Yeah, I mean that was one of the most shocking things for me in reading the copy of the book that you sent me over the past couple of weeks. Is um, how much closer the Arabic um, the terms that the Arabic authors and the translators were using in their astrological terminology. How close it was to the terms that some of the the Greek or the Hellenistic authors were using. Which surprised me because there's always been this assumption, I think, since, you know, part of when Project Hindsight came onto the scene in the 1990s, part of the argument was that we need to go back to the original tradition of Western astrology in the Greek texts because, in the original language, it has a richer technical vocabulary than we have in modern astrology, where the terms are more meaningful and the specific terms used were chosen deliberately to, you know, invoke some sort of interpretive principle. But then there was an argument that this was somehow lost or changed over the centuries in the transmission to Arabic and then Latin and then other European languages. Um, But when I'm reading your translation of the Arabic text, especially of Saul over the past week, I was shocked to see that in fact, the Arabic, early Arabic astrologers in the 8th and ninth centuries were much more deliberate and much more thoughtful about picking specific astrological terms that matched the meaning of the Greek terms much more deliberately than I expected.
1: Mhm. Yeah, that's that's one reason why uh, translating the Arabic has been such a pleasant surprise because uh we're now seeing subtlety where we didn't know there was subtlety. We're seeing new terminology that shows they were thinking about problems that we didn't know they were thinking about. Um so it's make it's going to make ultimately it's going to make chart reading a lot richer. Um, and gives us a little window into their minds and how they were how they were thinking. Right. Yeah, I
0: really like that. And so, with that example you were mentioning earlier about um, the term for a cadent house, what are some of the different terms used in Arabic for that that you're talking about that then are collapsed down into just one term in some of the Latin translators? Like what are well some one
1: ones? well one is the a simple word that just means to fall and. Um, So it just means to fall, and that would normally be used for like a cadent sign. Um, So you might say a a sign or a planet is falling. But um, they have another term, which is za'ilun, and that means to kind of back off, withdraw, and disappear. And that is a word that they use for the rotation of planets um, with respect to the axes. So when planets are approaching, let's say the midheaven, when they're approaching by the revolution of the sphere, they're approaching the degree of the midheaven, they're said to be advancing, no matter what kind of sign that they're in. And then when they pass beyond it, they are said to be withdrawing or retreating, again, no matter what sign that they're in. And as I'm sure we'll talk about it, means that they can mix and match interpretations between uh, the signs and the topics and the actual dynamics of where a planet is rotating in. And uh, there is no way of knowing that when you're just reading the Latin because you have no idea that they're using multiple terms. There's another phrase also, which uh, means to fall away from something. And that is a phrase which means aversion. It's what we call aversion. But again, the um, Latins don't recognize that this is a special phrase. And so the entire topic of aversion just kind of disappears uh, from the text.
0: Okay. So so part of what you're saying here, and and we'll get into this more detail later, but that they had specific terms to refer to when they were talking about a placement in whole sign houses versus a specific term for when they were talking about it with quadrant houses because they were trying to mm-hmm. use both at the same time or reconcile those two approaches but then in right. some of the later translations they would just pick one term so that that distinction that sort of subtle technical distinction disappears
1: yeah and then of course you have a version which is not based on those concepts um and that is so very prominent uh, but again, it belongs to those same family of words that the, that many of the Latins all all use the same word for. So you never really know that that's what the um, Arabs and Persians really mean.
0: Okay, great. Well, that's a good example. So um, this isn't your first translation from Arabic or published translation. I think the first one was Dorotheus, which was it just came out a couple of years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is your second major translation of a ancient or medieval astrological work from Arabic, and this is a huge 800-page book basically, yeah. right? I think there it can is. See it here. <laughs> can I see the side? Let me see how thick that is. 800 pages. Oh yeah.
1: You don't want to be beaten on the head with this. <laughs> right, you could do some damage with that
0: thing. Um, so this is let's talk a little bit about the book. So the book is a compilation of several works. Um, from this early 9th century as- astrologer, Salah bin Bishur, all translated from Arabic.
1: Right. It's got, it's got five of the works that the Latins knew, um, his introduction, which is basic principles, the 50 aphorisms, and his book on questions, which is on horary. Then it's got an electional work called On Choices, and then it's got a book on timing techniques called On Times, Um, And then, but the majority of the book is taken up by his book on nativities, which there are only two manuscripts of in Arabic, and it was never translated into Latin. So this will be totally new or almost totally new.
0: Okay. So some of these works are works that people have seen before through the Latin translations that you've done in the past, like in the Red Book where you had his book on horary that you translated from Latin on questions or in Choices and Inceptions where I think you had some of his electional work uh, translated from Latin as well, right? Yeah. So these those are ones that people have already seen. But since you're now going back to the original text and translating it directly from Arabic, there's actually some interesting ways in which the text is notably different. Like I noticed some when he's talking about the significations of the houses in one of the texts, for example, you put in a footnote that Um, the Arabic text in some instances is more concise or where it's clear now that the Latin translator added in some things.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's been some adding and subtracting. Uh, Sometimes the Latin translation was of help. Uh, But in general, I think the entire thing reads a lot more clearly because we're not reading it through the filter of the Latin.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So it's also important for historical surveys because sometimes- Traditional astrologers will go back and compare different texts and try to establish when certain concepts originated and who was doing what mm-hmm. at certain points in time and it can be problematic if you're using like the Latin translation because some things might have been added or changed changed whereas now that you're going back to the Arabic, you can say for sure what was in the original text by Saul.
1: yeah okay.
0: So um, we've got the Hori text, the the electional text, which were seen previously, but these are new and much sharper versions. And then the big centerpiece of this entire volume is the huge work on natal astrology that takes up the majority of it. And this has never been translated before in any language. Right. Okay. So um, let's see. So this is one of the most comprehensive treatments of natal astrology that exists of medieval natal astrology, or at least early medieval natal astrology, right? I mean, I was trying to think of what else is as long as this. The only other one is maybe like Abu Mashar's greater introduction or something th- something like that.
1: I think probably in terms of natal astrology, maybe um, Al-Rijal's treatise on nativities, which has not been translated yet. It, well, it was translated into uh, medieval um, Spanish. And um, but Originals might be around as big, uh, but he's often taking material from from Saul and some of the same authors. So it's definitely one of the biggest ones out there. And he was, and, okay. he, and so one of say, the reasons, pardon? Let's say top three, maybe? Top three. <laughs> okay. And, and one of the reasons it's so big is because he clearly um, had access to because of where he lived and when he lived he had access to all of these big name astrologers probably knew them in person and uh so he was able to put their material um into his book okay well let's talk about that
0: a little bit um let's talk about his bio the time frame he was living uh because there's a lot of like interesting stuff about that and the more and more i learn about it, the more I realize this is a really interesting time period in the history of astrology, which I always knew, but I didn't realize how much biographical information we had about some of these astrologers, and I didn't realize some of the interconnections between some of them, which are are really interesting. So um, I'm trying to think of where to set that up. It's like do we go back to the first? Because the first generation essentially of quote-unquote medieval astrologers is only like a few decades, maybe a generation before Saul, right?
1: Yeah, I think maybe a good way to start is to is to um, is to remind ourselves of Theophilus of Edessa. So Theophilus of Edessa was born in the late six hundreds A.D. He was born during the first major uh, dynasty or caliphate, the Umayyad uh, dynasty, and he lived long enough to become part of the second major dynasty, the Abbasids. And we know because of his writings that his Greek language astrology was on the way out and the Arabic language and the Persians were on the way in. So he was an old man when the younger astrologers like Masha'Allah and Umar al-Tabari and uh, those people uh, were moving into Baghdad and were becoming the court astrologers. So um, these famous people, Masha'Allah, Naubacht, the Persian, Umar al-Tabari. They were court astrologers and major uh, players in politics and astrology during those first few decades of the Abbasids, which was also when they were translating everything into Arabic. And so Saul would have been probably a young child during the time of a very famous uh, caliph, one of these uh, in this dynasty called Haru, uh, um, uh, Harun al Rashid, and uh, this this is the court in which the Thousand and One Arabian Nights stories was written. So this is the you know the heyday of Baghdad. Um, so he would have grown up. Pro- I'm thinking probably not in. Baghdad, he was probably over in Persia in an area of the um, empire called Khurasan. But as he got older, he joined the ranks of the elite astrologers and came to be uh, part of the astrological administration of the caliphate.
0: Right, because the the rulers were like actually taking advice from and directly doing important things based on what the astrologers were telling them at the time
1: right you and and what happened was that you had in baghdad you had one administration in the caliphate uh ultimately run by one brother there were two brothers two royal brothers and he had his administration and his astrologers by this time mashaallah and umar al-tabari uh were very were very old But then over in Persia, you had a rival brother who was claiming to be caliph, and he had his administration. And for all of them, their chief viziers or advisors, um, chiefs of staff, if you like, their viziers were also astrologers. So they were helping to make political decisions based on astrology.
0: Right. So this is things like... The, the famous founding of Baghdad where the caliph got together a group of astrologers and told them to pick an auspicious electional chart for the founding of his new city, which would become mm-hmm. the new capital of the empire. And two or three really famous astrologers ended up picking that electional chart.
1: Right. And uh, and in this case, you had uh, vizier astrologers who were making helping to make decisions like who sh- who should live or die. Who was an enemy and who was your friend, and should you go to war or not? And so Saul worked for one of these uh, viziers um, who was ultimately on the winning side, so I suppose they did some of their astrology right. Yeah, so pretty standard stuff still today, I guess, is what yeah. you're saying? Yeah. Yeah,
0: picking who lives and dies and uh, when to launch <laughs> right. wars and things like that. Right. Uh, so uh, Baghdad was founded, what year was it? Was it 776 or something like that?
1: No, well, I want to say 762, I think. 762, okay. or yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 762.
0: Okay. And uh, at that founding, there's two really crucial astrologers that play into this story. One of them, who you mentioned already, is Nabokht the Persian,
1: and the other one is Masha'Allah, right? Yep. Along, along with Umar al Tabari and Kanka the Indian. Okay, so Umar
0: was also one of the astrologers
1: involved. So it's actually like three really
0: notable astrologers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So they picked out that electional chart and then that becomes important because we have a Theophilus who is that last figure who, um, by the way, you came on the show and we talked about in episode 120 if people want to go back and listen for more detail on him. But he was that In between figure where he's writing in both, he could read both Greek as well as Arabic. So he's able to read and draw on some of the earlier Greek authors, but he also wrote in Arabic some works that then influenced subsequent generations of astrologers. Um, So we have Theophilus, um, but then we have Nabok the Persian and especially Masha'Allah. And Masha'Allah was writing in the last few decades of the eighth century and seems to be one of the most important foundational figures of establishing what became essentially medieval astrology
1: right i'd say so um he he wrote uh one he wrote several books on horary or questions uh only one of them got translated into latin but i'm going to translate the others and that was his book on reception and then um but parts of his horary works and electional works were re-transformed and reworked by Saul or reworked by Masha'allah and are included in some of the works here we now know. So Masha'allah became terribly important and is terribly important for the Saul's nativities as well.
0: Right. So maybe next to like Abu Mashar, Masha'allah would be The other, like, most influential, like, early medieval astrologer, it seems like.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Okay.
0: So, and he, some of this stuff, and and Masha'Allah's work is interesting because it still looks very much like late Hellenistic astrology, um, like Rhetorius of Egypt and some of the later Hellenistic astrologers, but it's incorporated, starting to incorporate new concepts that didn't exist previously, or it's starting to rapidly expand on concepts that didn't exist previously very much or weren't very common like horary
1: astrology. Yeah, some some of his uh some of his natal material uh in the Saul book um some of it sounds it, it's a it sounds like something you'd find in a horary book, you know. So for example, uh in material on children, he'll look at the lord of the 5th in all of the houses and then he'll he'll look at the, you know, the lord of the ascendant In various combinations with the Lord of the Fifth, the type of thing you'd find in a horary question, but applied to nativities. So he was maybe maybe applying a horary type style from the Persians to nativities, in addition to the natal material he already had. Okay.
0: Um, Yeah. So that's like the first generation, essentially, of of early medieval astrologers in the eighth century, and Saul represents part of. Essentially, the second generation, because he's a little younger, but he's still early enough that his work still looks very similar to Mashaallah, and he's still drawing on Mashaallah directly, even though he wasn't as far as we know, like a student of Mashaallah, right?
1: yeah, we don't know um you know Mashaallah would have been in Baghdad and died in about eight fifteen a d and the civil war, which Saul was working for the opposite side, the Civil war. Happened in the eight teens, so uh, don't know if Saul actually met Mashaallah, but in the end, he would have had all of Mashaallah's works.
0: Yeah, I mean that's really pretty close time lapse. It's almost like like Rob Hand right now, who's had a really long career up to this point and has been around for several decades, versus people like me and you who are just coming to the field over the course of the past decade or so, and there is like. Overlap there a little bit, even though we've not spent the majority of our careers sort of working or interacting at the same time. Right. Um, so, what are the dates in these charts? Um, you've actually been able to, in these works, because Saul includes some example charts of like horary questions and different things like that. You've been able to date um, Saul's approximate time frame of activity based on some of those charts, right?
1: Yeah. We definitely know that he was active during the Civil War, and we know the people that he worked for and when they died, so we can place him in the 18s. But a lot of the example charts that he uses for things like um, you know, transfer of light and collection of light, and then also an actual horary chart from his practice, we can date most of those till to about 824 and 825 A.D., So that sounds like he's he's now mature enough that he's writing his own book after he's had all these adventures and this important career. Um, It's said that he went to that he left the Baghdad area and went back to Horasan to write some you know some compilations of his works. So he might have lived for many more decades, but um, until I. Translate his mundane work with the mundane charts in it, um, and can date those. Um, we're not we're not too sure, but eight twenties definitely. The teens and twenties is when he was definitely very active in writing.
0: Okay, so flourished circa like eight fifteen through eight twenty five. What yeah. else do we know about him? He's kind of unique in that he's said to have been
1: like a, a Jewish astrologer
0: who converted to Islam, right?
1: Well he was he was a Jewish astrologer. I don't know if he converted at all. I, I don't know anything about that. Um, okay. but he, he's ref, he's referred to when he's referred to his he's called Al Israeli, so that means the Israelite or the Jew. So um uh he might not have converted.
0: Okay. Uh sorry, I may maybe just misunderstood something then when I was reading, uh and that's similar to Masha'Allah, who was also a Jew, Jewish figure, right? Right. Okay, so that's kind of interesting to me just because we know in the Hellenistic tradition, from like the you know earlier uh, from like the first century BCE through the seventh century, we know there were Jewish astrologers who were practicing astrology, but we don't really have like names of specific practitioners whose works survived that were were Jewish. Uh, so that makes Masha Allah and Saul two of the earliest, sort of nameable figures that we know mm-hmm. of for sure aside from um you know like um attributions to Abraham or other texts like that in the hellenistic tradition
1: yeah sort of maybe le- legendary figures but uh, here we can uh, we know where they were from we know who they were working for we know we have a lot of their works so that's that's uh, that's interesting perspective on well it's an interesting perspective on on the astrological administration too because in the civil war the um the viziers to the uh to the caliph who eventually won who was from Persia uh they were from an old Zoroastrian family so it could be that in those days in the for a few centuries at least uh the astrologers were basically persians and jews and zoroastrians and maybe that reflects a centuries old tradition that goes back to the to the to the pre-islamic persians you know that's an interesting interesting possibility
0: right that makes sense and then it's not until you get to like abu mashar for example who's definitely one of the first you know his background was as an islamic um astrologer writing in arabic and I think they said when he was younger, he was like a teacher
1: um, or interpreter of like the
0: religious books of Islam, right?
1: I want to say so. I think yeah, he was from the east, but um, yeah. By the time you get later in the eight hundreds, and you have people like Al Kindi, who was definitely Arab and Muslim, um, then you, I, th- it seems to me that the Persian influence started to uh, wane. Maybe, maybe.
0: Sure. All right. Uh so that sets some like background on the figure of like Saul and the cultural context. You have mentioned a couple of times the civil war that Saul was involved in and that was basically you talk a lot about that in the introduction to give set some historical background of who he was and what he was doing, but that was like two rival um brothers who both had different claims for the throne that were fighting each other in the the 815 time frame, right?
1: Yeah, it was just like out of a a story from Game of Thrones, you know. Uh, the old the old caliph dies. He leaves the empire to the one brother, but then leaves a province to the other brother, and said and and then thinks that everything will be okay. <laughs> and of course, they immediately start to go to war. And right. uh, so, um, yeah, big power politics, and the astrologers were right there helping to make the decision
0: right and that's just so bizarre thinking about a civil war like that with two kings essentially going to war with each other who are in charge of different provinces and then mm-hmm. both sides employing astrologers for different not just advice but for like strategic purposes i'm sure to pick electional charts and things like that
1: yeah in fact in um in one of the histories there's a famous history of this whole period by a a historian named Al Tabari, not the astrologer, but a different one. And I found a passage where he talks about one of those viziers, vizier astrologers, warning someone uh, not to go on a journey because the moon is corrupted. So um it made its way into the history that they were help they were deciding whether people should travel based on the motion of the moon.
0: Right, that's really interesting. And you actually, there's a funny, you sent me that translation of Abu Mashar's student recently, and it has a really funny story about the void of course moon in there and him trying to like urge some traveling companions not to go on a trip when the moon was void and they didn't listen to him and they just like went anyways. And he hung out like back at camp and just like had some food. And then they, one of the their party shows up later just uh in very bad shape and accuses Abu Mashar of of, you know, having had something to do with the fact that they were attacked by like robbers or something after that and that their trip didn't go well. Right, yeah. And then he his his like conclusion or moral of that story was never to talk about astrology with non-astrologers or something <laughs> at the end of that. Uh so yeah, there's a lot of funny stories and things like that from that time period. And there's also one interesting little historical tidbit that I only Realized after reading your book, which is um, the first woman that we know of who practiced astrology and seemed to have had some training in it, uh, was Baran of Baghdad, and she's also um, somewhere in this time frame as well, and has some sort of indirect connection with Saul the astrologer, right?
1: Yeah, I want to say that she was the—I think she was the daughter of his employer, one of the viziers. There were two viziers and i think she was the daughter of one of them and she she might have married the caliph so yeah he definitely would have known her probably worked i mean you you want to wonder if you know maybe she was partly his student and you know when her father was helping to decide whether to go to war she might have studied under saul they all would have known each other
0: right and then what's bizarre also about her and her is that she was part of the Nabokht like family line. So her family line goes back to one of those astrologers who was involved in the founding of Baghdad. And so you have this like weird like interconnection between all of these different figures of, you know, Nabak the Persian and, and Masha'Allah and the foundational electional chart for Baghdad around the 770s. And then you have Saul ibn Bishr and he's writing his texts and he's involved in the civil war in the 815s and then you have her father, that's involved in the civil war or what have you. And then you have her mm-hmm. or his daughter, Buran of Baghdad, who's the first named sort of woman or female astrologer that we know of.
1: Yeah, she married the caliph who won in 817 or 818. So after the okay. war was over and around the time that he made his triumphant entry into Baghdad, uh, Buran, who was the daughter of his astrologer, uh he he married her the caliph married her and and uh Saul was the employee of that um of that vizier
0: okay, so yeah, then our Saul totally probably would have known her um mm. to some extent, and there's a very famous like her marriage and the like opulence surrounding this the um celebrations surrounding it were like recorded in history books in like a very famous famous ways makes sense. Yeah, they, so. they
1: came she came from um a very illustrious family those two viziers her father and and her uncle um they came from a very illustrious long family uh in uh, in Khorasan so she probably they were probably very rich and right. very influ- it was probably partly a political marriage
0: Okay yeah and there's a famous story that's preserved about her about her like Averting or stopping an assassination attempt on her husband, the caliph or the, the king, essentially, um, through what seemed like either natal or horary astrology or something like that. And it's almost kind of a mm. fantastical sort of um, story in some ways, but it's interesting that it's attached to her. And just through, you know, an accident of history, we don't know of any other female astrologers prior to that by name, except maybe. Hypatia, but we, we don't know if she actually knew astrology or practiced it. We just sort of infer that she might have. Whereas with Baron, we have this specific story about her using astrology, and she's coming from the background of a family of astrologers that goes back at least a few decades. Yeah. All right. So I just wanted to mention that as a funny historical aside because I had been researching Baron more recently a few weeks ago, and then I th- I thought it was really funny seeing her come up in your book and realizing the overlap between those timeframes and what a small world is because that's the other thing we were talking about previously. If, with some of the earlier, like the Hellenistic astrologers, we know very, very little about their lives and very little about even their circumstances or the time frames that they're practicing astrology in. Whereas by the time we get to the medieval period with some of these astrologers, we start to know a lot more about their lives and like the context in which they're practicing astrology and like who knew who. And different things like that, so the history starts becoming a lot more fascinating and a lot more detailed in some ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I had my knowledge of you know these uh, caliphates was very slim years ago, but when I actually sat down to learn, you know who was ruling and who were these people that he worked for, and all of a sudden it was really fascinating, and I realized they were living in pretty amazing and dangerous times. And a lot of these people all knew each other. So um I never really put put the details together. So it's really come alive for me, and I, I hope it will for the reader too.
0: Yeah, well, you've got a really great introduction where you talk a lot about Saul's life and a lot about some of this background in history, and it was really, really fascinating to me. So I'm sure people like that, um, let's talk a little bit more though, about some of the actual texts and some of the techniques and stuff that are contained in this volume. so, um, as we were talking about earlier, the work on natal astrology, which is huge, how many pages does that actually occupy in the book roughly do you know it's like it's gotta be like five hundred pages or something.
1: Well, let's see. I'm gonna say it's from it's uh, about five hundred pages,
0: okay. So, And one of the things that's really interesting about that that seems to occupy a lot of time and space that I was the most fascinated by or or about is that it has a lot of cool delineation material on the rulers of the houses, and it will go through systematically and provide delineations for when the ruler of one house is in another house and what that means. Like if the ruler of the seventh is in the 10th, or if the ruler of the fourth house of the home and living situation is in the ninth house of foreign travel, it means this, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And and that's is that a large part of what
1: that text is dedicated
0: to? I mean, it seemed that way to me, but I'm not
1: sure. He includes it for every house, and he's taking it from a work by Mashaallah. So um, he's he's cannibalized a lot of Mashaallah's works and put them into his book of nativities. So a lot of the you know the Lord of the Ascendant in interaction with these other lords, or the lords of these houses throughout the houses, uh, it's from Mashaallah, and you can see him use a lot of derived houses. That seems to have been a, a favorite thing of his, um, and he's also uh, taken uh, apart Mashaallah's treatise on lots and put material for each. Lot into its own house, so in the um, the the lot of assets or money, uh, he puts that in the in chapter two from Mashaallah's treatise.
0: Okay, and some of these like the natal treatise that he you said he like in, incorporated or cannibalized that doesn't even survive necessarily from Mashaallah, right?
1: Um, yeah the uh, the some of the stuff on house lords kind of. It may survive uh, in a Latin text that I translated for the Red Book, but some of the delineations are kind of weird in the Red Book, in the Latin. Mm. So, in some cases, the distance between the real Masha'Allah in Arabic and the Latin is very (laughs) – the distance is great. Mm. So, um, he is putting stuff in there, though, that I don't think we have otherwise.
0: Okay. Um, I didn't
1: know it existed.
0: Yeah, and I I would say that, that to me was my favorite part of reading the natal text is just how the comprehensiveness of these delineations of the rulers of the houses. And this has to be the earliest complete set of delineations for the rulers of the houses that I know of because the only other one earlier in the tradition prior to this era, the very first one that survives is Rhetorius. Um, and I included large excerpts of that in my book on Hellenistic astrology, but rotorius is only partially complete, and and so it doesn't go through systematically and do each of the houses and what the ruler of each house and all of the 12 houses means, whereas this text treats that much more systematically. Mm -hmm. So um, some of the delineations, like you said, are just what it means for the ruler of one house to be in another, and it'll produce a delineation. But then sometimes like you were saying, that's also interesting. It produces it from the perspective of derived houses. So it'll talk about the ruler of the 7th house in the, let's say, 4th house, and it'll produce a delineation about how that relates to like the career of the spouse or something like that, because Mm -hmm. the 4th house is technically the 10th house relative to the 7th.
1: Right. Yeah, another one he always... (laughs) Another one that appears several times is when the Lord of the Third is in the tenth when he he he'll connect the third and the tenth and he'll say it shows the death of the brothers because the tenth is the eighth from the third and uh he does it more than once, and I figure if you know if ever there was a text I didn't know who it was by, and they started talking about the Lord of the Third and the tenth, I'd say it have to be by Mashaallah it seems to be a favorite. Uh, favorite thing of his.
0: Okay, maybe something that he saw that he got attached to as a delineation, or something that worked out well <laughs> could, in some charts.
1: Could be, but yeah, he, he's very interested in derived houses, so it's nice to see. Um, it's nice to see that get fleshed out in detail uh, by a working astrologer.
0: Yeah, so and that's definitely got to be one of the earliest treatments of that because Rhetorius derivative houses while they existed in the Hellenistic tradition are hardly mentioned at all except like in Valens, he has that sort of set of passages of derived house meanings, but you don't see actual delineations in a consistent sense like you do in this text. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really cool. There's also a lot of delineations of different types of lots for different topics and what it means for the ruler of a lot to be in different houses.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was really interesting. Yeah, you've got lot delineations, you've got lords of lots, uh, and the lot material is also from Masha'Allah, and he nicely groups them into categories like uh in the angles, uh or if uh, if uh you've got a um if a lot or it's Lord in the eleventh and the fifth, because those houses are, are related to one another. So he's he's got a nice systematic uh, approach to this, including, I think, the only treatment I've ever seen of the lot of spirit Mm. in the chapter on religion,
0: right? And he calls it like the lot of the future or something, right? What's it called? Um, Immaterial. uh,
1: The it's it's a funny word, but I'm calling it now the lot of the invisible. Okay. The the verb has to do with things that are not present. Well, the spiritual world is not present to the senses. So that's kind of why they uh why they use that word. So um yeah, so they call it the lot of the invisible or the lot of the absent. And he's talking about the personal personal piety and outward behavior of the native, which I find really interesting. Hmm. Yeah,
0: I mean, so this then also becomes for people that are interested in um the interpretation of the lots or the Arabic parts in natal astrology, especially like a go-to work for understanding how those are applied and how they're actually interpreted in detail in chart delineations. Right. Okay, nice. Um so this you wanted to translate this text and you spent you've been working on this for several years now, because I know you're I remember you working on parts of this text. well, it had to be like three or four years ago,
1: right? Yeah, it might have been been four. Yeah, Yeah, it's been a a long
0: time. It's so long and so extensive going through all of the houses and all of the different topics in natal astrology. And one of the reasons that you wanted to translate this and make this one of the first texts that you translated from Arabic um, is because you wanted to use this. It's such a comprehensive text on natal astrology. You wanted to use it as part of uh, a course that you're developing on medieval astrology, right?
1: Right. I'm writing a, a a medieval or traditional natal course, and this will be one of the two textbooks. So it covers all of the natal material and all of the, you know, the basics of um, interpreting uh, planets and houses and so on. So this will be one of the two books. Okay um
0: and this text is really comprehensive in terms of that it's like one of the most comprehensive natal astrology or traditional natal texts that i've seen um but that's that's just one of like we said earlier six or seven different texts that you've translated in this volume right
1: right i've um it's uh, you know there there's obviously the the books on the other branches there are a couple of appendices um uh one of one of them is by Saul, its short aphorisms. And then there's another there's another appendix that shows the interaction of uh the Lord of Descendant with the Lords of all the other houses, and then gives detailed interpretations based on who's applying to whom and what house they're applying out of. So there's lots of really interesting stuff here that people have not seen before. That would be useful for a student, both, you know, more sophisticated, advanced material, and also, um, you know, lists of all the different permutations with some quick and easy kinds of statements.
0: Right. I'm trying to pull that up really quickly to see if we can give an example, just so people can understand what that means. Um, the appendix that I was. Yeah, because that's really cool and it's a really subtle distinction, like the distinction if the, the ruler of the ascendant is applying to an aspect as a faster moving planet that's applying to an aspect with, for example, the ruler of the third house, it means this. Whereas if it's reversed so that it's the ruler of the third house applying to an aspect with the ruler of the ascendant, then it means something slightly different, essentially, right?
1: Right. And then he gives lists of, and I think that I have a feeling this might be from Masha'Allah, but there's no author given, but it's at the end of one of the Saul manuscripts. So, you know, for example, the Lord of the Ascendant and the Lord of the Second. Uh, Well, it depends on where the light is coming out of. If the applying planet is in the third sign, he'll get the money because of siblings. If it's coming from the ninth house, the assets will reach him from another country. And then he goes through other kinds of uh, signs, you know, four-footed signs, human signs. There are even little rules that some of them come from Masha'Allah for how to tell whether um, something like the sixth house, whether you're looking at illness and injury or animals and slaves and underlings. So sometimes they'll give little rules for how you can tell the difference between what you're, you know, what you're looking at in houses that mean many different things. Okay, how to differentiate specific topics since you know,
0: houses have a, a pretty wide range of different topics, and sometimes it can be hard to figure out which topic
1: it is. Yep, they, they do that, especially for um, uh, the sixth and the third, they definitely do that for. Okay. Uh, the th- the third, um, they're differentiating between siblings and religion or personal piety. So um, there's some rules that kind of come along the way. Uh, generally, a a, a benefic uh, in the third or ruling the third will steer the meaning towards the natives' um, piety and religion. Whereas if it's a malefic planet, it will tend to steer more towards siblings. Which maybe gives a little insight into how they viewed sibling relationships. So, uh, but yeah, but- I'm actually
0: looking at that delineation right now. Mm-hmm. Um, let me read it really quickly. So it says, "So it says a section: the Lord of the Ascendant and the Lord of the Third House. If the Lord of the Ascendant handed over its management to the Lord of the Third, it indicates riding and outings and encountering siblings and what resembles that." Um, and if it accepted the management from the lord of the third, so then it gives the the reverse, which is if um, the lord of the third apply, is not an applying aspect to the ruler of the Ascendant, and the lord of the third house is a fortune, it indicates the activity which he hopes for a fee from is from God. So then it gives the, the religious deligion, uh, delineation you are talking about and says, if it was an infortune, a report will reach him which will distress him. And he'll encounter some of his friends and siblings, and whatever there will be from that uh, will be the light of the planet, whatever the light of the planet indicates. And it just keeps going on and starts differentiating mm-hmm. between what type of aspect it is between the two, whether it's a sextile or trine or square or what have right.
1: you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, so that's really interesting and really cool because it starts getting into some very specific distinctions that aren't really taken into account today where astrologers are often just group you know, a sextile is a sextile and a square is a square and trine is a trine. But here, they're saying that the planet that's faster moving that applies to the other planet really matters. And there's different like a square on the left is different from a square on the right, and so on and so forth. Right. All right. So in terms of just really sharpening natal delineations, and not just being aware that there are distinctions like that abstractly, which sometimes Like we know about in Hellenistic astrology, but here actually putting specific delineations so that you can start to really get to the heart of what the conceptual distinction is and how that works out in practice.
1: Yeah, they're putting all of the pieces together, and uh, and you know there there aren't there's only one chart example of a worked out horary chart, and it's a very good one. Um, But yeah, in their lists of rules and the like, what you were reading. it really gets you to understand and and start to practice with a different how different types of aspects mix with different types of signs and different types of planets.
0: Right, um, and what I love about the book and what's really helpful is that you start uh, the entire book out with this text known as the introduction, um, and the introduction by Saul is basically. A list of definitions of basic concepts and basic terminology, which opens up the entire volume in order to explain all of the technical terms that will be used later on throughout the rest of the work.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, the the first three books. Um, I didn't know this. Uh, I didn't know this when I translated from the Latin, but the first three books, the introduction the fifty aphorisms and on questions in most of the manuscripts uh it seems those are all bundled together like those mm-hmm. three books form a horary course or a horary manual um so it the introduction is an introduction to everything and concepts about everything but it especially acts as an introduction to horary
0: okay brilliant um and I'm trying to think it so it's like some of the things that it defines are simple things, like what the significations of the houses are and things like that. But it also defines some more complicated or advanced concepts, like different types of aspects or different types of aspect um relationships that planets can have, like transfer of light or collection of light and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: all right, so. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: And one of one of the um, one of the things that did not really come out well in the Latin, I felt, but does come out well here, is an interesting concept called non reception. Uh, that he gives he gives five different versions of it, and it's something that is now making me think differently about how reception fits into you know this scheme of all these concepts. So um, normally we think of reception as kind of a standalone sort of um, situation, where um, you know if one planet, if if a let's say uh, the moon is in Aries, and Aries Aries is ruled by Mars, well if she is aspecting Mars and in his sign, then he receives her. He receives her into his sign. So there's a sense of acceptance and protection there, but. Saul goes through a number of examples, which he calls non-reception, and this is when um, a planet is in a planet is being applied to, for example, from a sign that is its fall. For example, um, uh, Mars is exalted in Capricorn, so he's in his fall in Cancer. That means that cancer represents his downfall. It represents something disgusting or terrible, or you know he doesn't like things that come from cancer. So if a planet applies to him out of cancer, it's like someone who represents your enemy trying to influence you. Well, you would say, no way, I don't want that light. I don't want that influence. Well, it's an interesting idea, but then I started to realize that when, you, when he goes through um, all of his examples, he's also linking it to being peregrine, which is when you're in a sign that you don't rule. And I'm, I'm starting to think that there's kind of a hierarchy of ways in which they thought about how a planet belongs to a sign and feels at home in a sign. Um, if you are peregrine, it's like being in a foreign country. Uh, because you don't you don't really belong you have no ownership over this foreign land that you're in well it makes a big difference if you are in contact with your host or if you are trying to talk to someone who thinks you uh are you know strange and weird and they don't want to have anything to do with you that would be an example of non reception so there's kind of a psychological- um in some cases, kind of a psychological hierarchy that he's building here of attitudes between planets based on whether they are in their falls or in each other's falls or they're peregrine and they need help, and is there a planet who can help them? So um, it makes reception part of a broader system of concepts that could help make a horary chart come alive in a way that you might not have expected.
0: Yeah, that was a lot more complicated and a lot more um, nuanced than I was expecting. Like You have a great little breakdown of some of the different possible scenarios of non-reception at one point in a table where you give an example of uh, Planet B, for example, is alien in Planet A's sign. So for example, if the Moon is in Virgo, and it's um, applying to Saturn,
1: that would be an example of non-reception? Right. That's an example of non-reception because Saturn does not have any dignity in Virgo. Well, I mean, he has a bound there, but in terms of just sign or exaltation, he doesn't own anything in Virgo. So if the Moon is applying to him, that's like someone asking you for help about something that isn't even your business. And most of the time people would not necessarily I mean, if you're very nice, you would help out, but we don't go out of our way normally to help people in situations that are not our business.
0: Right. Whereas if the moon was in Aquarius and it was applying to Saturn, it would be the moon being in Saturn's domicile and applying it so there would be greater there would be reception and therefore Saturn would be in a greater uh, have a greater inclination or position to help the moon or to receive it as a result of that.
1: Yeah, he's you know he's responsible for Aquarius, so the things that happen in Aquarius he's responsible for. Yeah, but if um, if uh, suppose he is in his fall in Aries, so if the moon was in Aries and applying to Saturn, she's in a situation that represents something that would drag him down. So it in a way he might not want to help her because um it would hurt him.
0: Right. That makes sense. Um so that's really important and, and that's one of the more interesting areas of this is seeing the reception doctrine really become more formalized and become a lot more nuanced than I even realized in the early mm-hmm. medieval tradition. Mm-hmm. Um so there's yeah, other stuff. So it
1: nice it nicely comes out in the Arabic. In a way that it doesn't come out in the Latin.
0: Right, definitely. Um, Additionally, even with some basic concepts, just the fact that you're going back and translating it from the Arabic, um, the specific terms that they're using for some of the concepts and the way that you translate and then have commentary or footnotes explaining them sometimes or providing alternative translations really provides a lot deeper meaning into even some very basic concepts. So for example, At one point in the introduction, Saul defines the concept of a planet being in his detriment. Um, And some of the terms Hmm. that you use that you footnote from the Arabic are really interesting in the way that they're describing them. So he says, um, the 10th consideration is if a planet were quote-unquote inverted, and that is when they are in the contrary of their house. Uh, That is when they are in the seventh from their own house, and that is called quote unquote unhealthiness, so he's actually referring yeah. to what we call what we've called detriment, I guess for a few centuries as unhealthiness
1: right yeah the the word that they the word is wabal and um yeah it's it's one of the standard words for detriment it means unhealthiness, and I think it comes there's a related word that means like unhealthy air, and so when a planet is um in the contrary of its preferred you know place, yeah it's as though there's something kind of malfunctioning and uh, disturbed uh, about its functioning, kind of like an imbalanced uh, body that's uh, suffering from sickness. And that is why a planet in detriment implies some kind of corruption. Something's falling apart, something's not able to be held together properly. It's not functioning right
0: yeah, I love that in the footnote. It says you say that this sense of internal contrast and conflict should be compared with the sense of unity and comfort a planet has when it's in its own house or own domicile, its own sign of the zodiac. Um, and I think this is a really great example of the benefit and the real benefits that we're we're getting to benefit from of you having learned Arabic and gone back to the original language because then you're able to, access and un- unlock some of the deeper and richer uh, philosophical and symbolic meanings underlying this terminology that was picked out it seems very deliberate by this first generation of mm-hmm. astrologers that were writing in Arabic in the late 8th and early ninth century
1: yeah the um the uh the, the that business about detriment and, and a sense of inner struggle or inner contrariety um, comes out in other places too when they connect being in detriment with travel and normally you would think that um you know if a planet is in detriment then it's as far away from its sign as it can be it's on the opposite side of the chart mm-hmm. but what they part of the delineation of that in a couple places is that it shows travel because the person is kind of disgusted with their homeland and wants to get out <laughs> so it's it's not just that the planet is far away but the, but detriment implies a kind of restlessness and dissatisfaction
0: right and i think you you actually translated and i was surprised to see this because i know in some of the later european languages like in modern astrology in non-english speaking countries they sometimes refer to detriment as a planet being in its exile and I saw that you actually used a term, I think you translate as exile at one point in this book from Saul, right?
1: Yeah, but in Saul, exile means being peregrine, means okay. uh, being foreign or alien.
0: Got it, okay. Uh, so it was maybe just later that exile became applied to the concept of detriment in some later traditions? Could be. Got it. All right. Um, so yeah, that's really important in the introduction just because Saul's going through and he's defining some of these basic terms and he's in some instances explaining what they mean, but you're then giving in the footnotes often this other much richer or broader layer of interpretation by talking about the meaning of some of those terms. And I really appreciated that about this book.
1: I have to credit in part the Arabic language because Arabic allows itself to be kind of um, unpacked and unfolded in that way but yeah i felt it was really important and i felt i felt it was important and that they were doing it intentionally that they were picking their words intentionally in a lot of cases
0: yeah well yeah i mean that and that's what's so fascinating me- to me because that was always you know you and i were really influenced by the work of of robert schmidt who that was always his argument about hellenistic astrology was that some of these terms were picked very deliberately to invoke a range of different meanings that had um, direct application to the interpretation of the astrological principle. If you just went back to the original Greek terms and retranslated them into what they um, literally mean, you can access this whole other language level of the astrology. And his argument was always that you could only do that by going back to the Greek. But one of the things that I was surprised and, and excited about here is we can see that 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 early generation of Arabic astrologers did the same thing where they deliberately picked terms that would invoke a range of specific meanings so that they're not just technical terms that are just randomly picked and don't mean anything, but instead mm-hmm. understanding the term actually helps you be a better astrologer in some sense.
1: Yeah, one ex one interesting example that uh then looks forward to Lily is um one of the configurations that um, I don't think it's in Saul, but it's in Abu Mashar and others it's when uh, like in a Horary chart, and you you want to know if something's going to happen. and the lighter planet applies to the slower planet, but then just before it reaches it, it slows stations and goes retrograde and never completes the the connection. And the word they use has to do that, that the Arabs use is a word that has to do with breaking your word or not fulfilling a contract and um in Lily uh he ge- he uh, interprets this not knowing I don't think not knowing uh, what the Arabic was. he was working from Latin, and he describes this as someone who will who will you know change their mind at the last minute mm so they were picking words deliberately that described um, that described what the planet was doing, but gave it a kind of social meaning or psychological meaning that makes it really rich.
0: Right, yeah, I really like that. Um, so that's the introduction, and the introduction is really useful in that sense, and it sets a broad foundation for the rest of, of this work, and some of the terms that are used, but also just some of the underlying symbolic meaning of different concepts in medieval astrology. Um, And then the other major early work though that comes after the introduction in this text that you translated is the 50 aphorisms, which is really helpful. And and especially for newer students, I love the medieval approach to writing aphorisms and I always found it really useful because it's just really short, um, condensed interpretive principles in astrology or general principles for the student to learn and sort of memorize that contain um, a lot of deep wisdom about different aspects of astrology, mm-hmm. so what is the what is the fifty aphorisms? It's fifty short um you know instructional principles in Arabic, and this is actually you said in the introduction connected to some other list of aphorisms that became very popular in the Latin tradition, right
1: the uh, this. Uh, no, that's the sixty-six sections that's in the, one of the appendices. Uh, the six. Those, those are also little aphorisms. Mm. Those came to be incorporated into a bigger list called the Propositions of Al Mansur. The fifty okay. aphorisms. Some of them, I think, come from Mashaallah. Some can be traced to Theophilus. Um, Banati uses all or most of them in his book on the 146 considerations and then he comments on them so this is the original list that bonatti uses in his book and comments on okay got it so it's yeah it's uh it's short aphorisms about you know here are here are some key, a lot of it is key words uh you know so it might give you know, four key words for being void in course, or key words for being retrograde, um, and these can be really handy uh, because, again, they're deli- they seem to be deliberately using uh, uh, picking their words. It's not very it's not really casual. Um, so, yeah, the 50 after is aphorisms is um, is very interesting and handy.
0: Yeah, it's got a lot of useful stuff. I mean, there's some that are just interesting basic interpretive principles. Um, Like here's a paragraph like the second or no, it's actually the very first aphorism is about the Moon. Uh, Do you mind if I read it really quick? Sure. So it's just just a good example of like a general one. It says, um, the first aphorism, know that the indicator that is the Moon is the nearest of the planets of the celestial circle to the Earth, and it is the most similar of the planets to the affairs of the world. Uh, Do you not see that man appears small and then grows big, and then is made complete? Uh, Likewise the Moon. So take her as the indicator for every affair, and her health is the health of everything, and her corruption the corruption of everything. And she hands her management over to the first one she encounters and is connected to, because it accepts what she has handed over to it. And she is the bearer for these planets, and the conciliator between two of them, and the transferer from one of them to another. So it's just a short sort of paragraph, but it's just containing sort of condensed basic principles there
1: mm-hmm, and linking uh and it's but it's also showing you some analogies between astronomical behavior like the phases of the moon. To the life of the human being, and also the nature of events, uh, that events themselves have beginnings. They mature, uh, they peak, and then they they fall apart, like the moon. Then comes to waning. Right,
0: uh, and then here's the sixth aphorism: the void, of course, moon one that you mentioned. It says, if the moon was empty in chorus, not connecting with any of the planets. It indicates emptiness, idleness, and returning from that situation with scanty results, and the corruption of all of one's purposes." And that's it. So it's a nice little concise thing about trying to teach you what the basic meaning or principle is underlying that specific concept of the void of course Moon. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we had that's a whole there's a whole like can of worms with that as well, because we were talking about a lot recently, like what is the interpretation of the void of course moon that they're using since mm-hmm. we know in modern times there's recently been this debate about, for example, how Lily's defining void of course moon and whether he's using the modern definition or if he's using another interpretation, which is just that it's not applying to within an orb any other planets within. Orb without regardless of the sign boundary, and there's some mm-hmm. weirdness surrounding that in, in this text.
1: Yeah, there's uh, th- there's I like the uh, the 10th one on retrogradation, and uh, and the 15th one has some when a lot of people are interested in planets that are in the last degree of a sign, and he oh, has yeah. a very vivid example of this. But in retrogradation, a retrograding planet. Indicates disobedience, collapse, repetition, and disagreement. Well, that's a lot of things to really ponder.
0: Yeah, I love that um, repetition. That's like mm-hmm. a great keyword for retrograde planets. Even thinking of something as simple as like retrograde Mercury, that's actually, you know, how Mercury to some extent, Mercury retrograde is like a common interpretive principle, and almost like cliche interpretive principle today. In early 21st century astrology, as it's become popularized, like the idea of having to do things over again during Mercury retrograde is actually a common concept. And it's really funny to see him using that keyword here when he's talking about mm-hmm. retrograde planets in the early 9th century, in mm-hmm. uh, saying repetition is one of the keywords.
1: One of the things that I found interesting about the Masha'Allah excerpts, Masha'Allah is very interested in retrogradation too. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about it a lot. And he also he links retrogradation with spirituality. Because in the old um astronomy, you know, a, a planet that is uh moving direct is moving downwards towards the earth, kind of like the soul coming down into the body. And so he says a retrograde planet, because the retrograde planet is sort of circling back up, it shows. That maybe that either the soul, if you're looking at like um, you know an infant, or or your activity is sort of not as focused on day to day affairs, but might be focused on uh, uh, spiritual affairs. Mm. And I'd never heard that before, but it it's another way of using the astronomy to illustrate something about interpretation. And it might, for some people. Put a whole new um perspective on a retrograde planet that they have,
0: yeah, definitely that's really interesting. I'd never heard of that before, um and then the fifteenth one that you mentioned is tricky because that's actually tied into another modern debate about the concept of cusps uh and Austin and I, Austin Kopic and I did an episode about that last fall where we we're going back and trying to read some different texts and I think we may have actually read this aphorism from your latin translation from years ago so it's interesting that now you've translated this directly from the arabic and it does raise some interesting questions about how planets at the very end of signs were conceptualized in traditional astrology mhm do you want to read it
1: yeah and and this is particularly for again it goes back to our discussion about how sign boundaries were very important to them especially in questions A planet changing signs means a change in the situation. So he says, if a planet came to be in the last degree of the sign, then its strength has already gone away from that sign, and its strength is in the next sign. And it is in the position of a man putting his foot on the threshold of his door and on the verge of departing. So if the house falls, it will not harm him. And if a planet was in the twenty-ninth degree, so between twenty-eight and twenty-nine, then indeed the strength of the planet is in that sign. For every planet has three degrees in which its strength is diffused in the degree it is in, the degree in front of it, and the degree behind it. Okay,
0: so that's I mean, that's a big deal to me, because to me that is almost saying. I mean what you know there's different interpretations, and we we're having we we're having a debate. It was like Ryan Butler was talking about his interpretation of that and and the question is you know what practically speaking does that mean, and how far can we take that if he's saying that if it's in the last degree of the sign that it's um that its strength is in the next sign you know what does he mm-hmm. mean by strength in that context?
1: mhm you know I wonder if uh this could be one of the origins of that horary rule about the um, the ascendant degree being in the last three degrees of a sign. Mm-hmm. That it's not worth asking the question because the situation's already done. Right. Yeah, that would make sense because the,
0: then the ascendant mm-hmm. and a question, but it's, I don't. It's just become complicated in modern times because in pop astrology, it's become common to say that if, like your sun, for example is at 29 degrees of a sign that some pop astrology books are saying that you interpret that as if it's in the next sign.
1: Mm. And
0: so, mm. um, the question is, is there any traditional or medieval precedent for that? And whether somebody could point to a rule like this and say, yes, or if somebody would point mm. to a rule like this and say, no, not necessarily. He's he's He means something else by that.
1: Yeah, I think in a horary- context they always want to know what is going to happen next and what's going to happen next here is the planet is leaving the sign the situation is ending so in that case it is almost like you have to answer the question as though the planet is in the next sign because that's what happens next but in a nativity sure. but in a nativity i wouldn't i wouldn't think so Maybe something like that is relevant. Yeah. I mean,
0: I know I don't want to come to any definitive we don't have to come to any definitive conclusions here, but it's just an interesting question to ponder yeah. in terms of debates like that. And if you would really like interpret a planet that's at 29 Aquarius as if it's in Pisces, for example, because that's how far that is being taken in some forms of, of modern astrology, and there's other astrologers that push back and say, no, the sign boundaries are very strict and a planet in Aquarius is interpreted as a planet in Aquarius and not as a planet in Pisces or or what have you.
1: Right, okay, I see. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. so fun things for people. That's another nice <laughs> tidbit that other people, you know, modern astrologers, that's a, that's a good motivation to me. I mean, these two things that we've touched on, we've just touched on two very widely known modern astrology concepts. And this gives you a good reason why if you're a modern astrologer, You might want to go back and read some of these medieval texts because we're really talking about the origins of some of these concepts very long ago, over a thousand years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. And some of the and some of them were still maybe in transition during this period. And whether they should have changed, whether they shouldn't have changed, you know, we have to that's for us to debate about.
0: Sure. But at least here we can go back and and trace the different origins of some of these concepts and then have that discussion about what's useful or what's valid or what's um applicable mm-hmm. to us today
1: yeah all right so we've got you know, it, and and if i could just say you know i if you think about the times that Saul was living in um this was life and death stuff so um it, it you know the you can imagine maybe Saul you know walking to over to Masha'allah's house and saying, uh, will you help me look at this chart? And maybe Masha Allah says, well, you know, when a when a planet's in the last degree of its sign, it's like a man walking out of his house. I mean, uh this had life and death consequences uh for them. And so um the intens- the intensity which they might have uh examined this is intriguing to think about.
0: Yeah, and even the most the subtlest of astronomical distinctions would sometimes have a major bearing on interpreting a chart one way or another, especially something like a horary chart where you're sometimes trying to answer a very specific question with a yes or no response, and and something very subtle sometimes can make all the difference. Right. So that actually brings us to the other major work that you've translated here, which is on questions, which is one of the earliest surviving complete texts on Horary astrology, just because, as we've talked about before, while there's tr- we talked about in our episode on Dorotheus a couple of years ago, how there's traces of something like horary that start to develop as early as the first century in Dorotheus. Uh, we don't have any complete texts in Greek from the Hellenistic tradition that survive on horary, so this um, this collection of texts from authors like Mashaala and Saul. Become some of the earliest essentially foundational texts on Horary that survived from the Western tradition
1: hmm yeah, and um not only is Saul presenting us a sort of a fully fully developed uh system here about Horary, but we can also show now with other Arabic manuscripts <coughs> excuse me that he was using mashaallah's um other horary books that have never been translated. I have some of them in Arabic manuscripts, and I've footnoted cases where Saul is clearly taking this material from Masha'Allah, putting it into his book, and in some cases, Saul is actually abbreviating Masha'Allah. You'll read the rules for a question, and Masha'Allah might go on for another page about the question and Saul just cuts it short and moves on. So, um the book on questions, very fascinating window into the state of horary and the choices that Saul was making for his own book. Yeah, um and it's really important
0: and I always like I think it's kind of useful to if if somebody's going to learn horary to go back and read some of these earliest texts on horary first in some ways, like the text by Masha Allah on reception or especially Saul's book, which you've translated here from the Arabic on questions because it shows um, almost in some ways like a more basic approach to horary. It's not quite as elaborate in some ways as it becomes in some of the later traditions, but instead, it's, it's somewhat more straightforward about how they're answering questions as largely just like yes or no responses to specific questions, especially ones that are connected with one of the 12 houses. And he goes through systematically in this text and groups different questions based on the houses and say says, these are all the questions that you can answer with the 7th house and the ruler of the 7th house. These are all the 8th house questions, these are all ninth house questions, and so on and so forth.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, plus some really interesting ones at the end there's one on retaliation or revenge he has a, a a section on questions that don't fit into the 12 houses and uh one of I think this is one of them but he it's the chapter on on uh, whether or not you will get revenge on somebody <laughs> and he's assuming that maybe your friend has been beaten up or killed by someone and there's a blood vendetta and uh what will happen next? okay
0: uh, yeah, and that's I mean my favorite one and probably the most important chapter I think is chapter 18, which is on uh, hoary questions related to meals because uh, yeah, I think that was definitely was the the pinnacle of of medieval astrology like I've been meeting to write I've been thinking about doing like an article of like top five uh trivial uses of astrology in history and the the meal questions is definitely up there on my list
1: yeah the i i want to uh next time i go to a party i want to cast the chart and uh and see what's going to happen what's <laughs> <Right. laughs> going to happen at the party um but it he even makes an interesting statement here about um if it's a party that, if it's a banquet or a party that you aren't able to get out of because it's one of the, because it's one of the, you know, those stage of life kinds of banquets, you know, well, we have to go to this party. Let's see how terrible it's going to be. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, there there's a little bit of, uh, you know, realistic commentary about the fact that, uh, you know, maybe maybe the people will be fun, but the food will be awful. And so there's all sorts of rules about you know what foods you should eat. You know, eat the salad, but don't eat the fish.
0: <laughs> okay, That's good to know. Uh, that is a <laughs> definitely a good selling point for this. Um, so that's the Hori one. And then it's like if that wasn't enough, finally, there's also um a whole treatise you've translated here on electional astrology, which is the book of choices.
1: Yeah, I've done other versions of it before. I hope this will be my last version of it. (laughs) Um, But it is very interesting. Some of it, you can tell, comes from Dorotheus. Some of it comes, we now know, from Masha'Allah and other people. Uh, In fact, Theophilus too makes an appearance, which we didn't know before uh, because we hadn't translated Theophilus yet.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, so this is basically you've got a complete, in this single volume, almost like a complete approach to medieval astrology that almost covers all of the major branches of the tradition. The only one that's not in here, I think, is mundane astrology, right? But otherwise, you've got a huge text on natal astrology, you've got a, a perfect introductory text on horary astrology, and you've got a great, uh, pretty comprehensive text on electional astrology.
1: Yep, and the uh, and volume two will be the mundane. I, I've he wrote a a very lengthy mundane book with lots of uh, chart examples, so that will be uh, volume two.
0: Okay, brilliant. So this is just volume one, and you've got a follow up that you're going to do at some point. Right. Cool. And finally, there's one other little obscure text in here um, that I really love from the original volume. So I, of the red book. So I was excited to see this translated from the original language. And this is a like a curious little text called "On Times," which is about timing techniques. right. Uh, so what types of timing does this text address?
1: Um, it has to do with lots of different ways, both in general and in specific topics, uh, how to tell when some effect is going to happen. And it seems to be more focused on horary and electional charts so it could be things like you know if you find if you find a certain planet that you're using for the timing uh let's say the moon or the lord of the ascendant and it's in a fixed sign uh will that make things go faster or slower or here are the ways different ways that you can convert the number of degrees between two planets into units of time or um, if you're asking about some topic, like when will I have children, here are some ways that you can look at the chart in order to you know, give the timing for that. So there's a lot of different approaches for um, timing techniques, again, mainly in horary, but there's a lengthy one at the end uh, on um, politics. It's on the length of um, rulership when someone takes the throne. Okay.
0: Yeah, I actually have a funny little anecdote about that and about your translation of this from before, where um, back in 2008, so like 11 years ago now, I asked Patrick Watson a horary question um, about a relationship, and it was actually it was funny. It was actually about a relationship with with Lisa, and I asked, "Will we have a relationship?" Because I wasn't sure what was going on. If there's something going on here, and if there's those actually gonna turn into something, or if I was just a you know mirage not a mirage, but if I was misinterpreting some signals or something like that. So I asked this question, will we have a relationship? And the answer, the the like ruler of the ascendant and ruler of the seventh or something were applying and it indicate with reception, it indicated the answer was yes. Um and what was weird is that a month or two later we did start a relationship and are still in a relationship 10 years later. But Patrick and I noticed that the day that we got into the relationship that the two significators, I think the ruler of the Ascendant and ruler of the Seventh completed their aspect and perfected the aspect at the time. And we were like, wow, that's really amazing. And we thought we had discovered a new timing technique for horary that nobody had ever discovered. And then like a year later, I was reading through your translation of the Red Book of this text on times and Saul's talking about different ways to time horary charts, and he describes that exact thing where he says Mm -hmm. when the significators like perfect in the sky, then sometimes the horary question will come to completion or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, is that basically? Did I get that right?
1: Yeah, and there's different combinations too. Um, You know, if the moon, if the moon, um, you know. Goes around the zodiac, and when it comes to the ascendant of the question, that can also be a time. Um, or if there's, you know, if if the degrees between two planets are converted into days or months or whatever time frame is reasonable, and there's also a transit of the moon at that very, you know, corresponding to that time. So yeah, he gives a lot of uh, versions of that.
0: Yeah, I just really loved that because it's an example of. You know, I was somehow oblivious to that, and then later somebody told me that that's already like a timing technique that Lily talks about. So apparently, I just didn't get the memo, or I wasn't. You know, that shows my lack of um, familiarity with some of the later traditions of horary, at least at that point in my career. But I mm-hmm. thought it was a great example where sometimes in modern astrology we can still discover things, or you can occasionally. Discover a principle on your own just through working with charts and and learning things, but sometimes it really pays to go back and read these older texts first, because sometimes these astrologers from centuries ago have already done the groundwork and have already found a lot of really interesting and practical and useful things that you could start off with instead of making it harder for yourself and like having to like rediscover everything from scratch mm, as yeah. a sort of like empirical approach to astrology, yeah. Yeah, something and, like that.
1: And and it's I think it's nice to um it's nice to get it from someone like Saul that you know was a practicing astrologer and not just a compiler of you know pre-existing books, you know, he wasn't just a he wasn't just a compiler, he was someone who actually had to do the astrology himself and that might be why he wrote the book of this on times the way that he did. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of
0: You know he's casting dozens or hundreds of horary charts and seeing different things work out in practice and in action, and then trying to pass that on to his students or to subsequent generations of astrologers as part of his collective wisdom uh, that he's accumulated in his career. Mm -hmm. And now that's come down to us centuries later through um, just these handwritten manuscripts, you know, in
1: Arabic that you've now
0: translated into English.
1: Yeah, it makes me wonder if uh, other Persians were doing the same thing because I, I don't think in the Hellenistic material we have an equivalent to on times. It's almost like this is, this is something that only someone in his kind of situation might have produced, or or, I I mean um I can't think of any other similar kind of work. Yeah, I can't
0: either. It's a really curious book, and it it always was kind of a mysterious one in the red book. And I think that's why I originally overlooked it and only realized later that it had that technique um, already embedded in it, but it was kind of interesting finding it at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, so those are all of the major sort of things that are in this volume, which is just a ton of stuff. It's a big thick 800-page book. There was a few other things. You've got a great introduction at the beginning where you talk about some of the major things that this helps us to understand better. Um, One of them that I know we wanted to talk about briefly before we wrap up this episode is that in these works of Saul, we can see that he's aware of and he's using both whole sign houses as well as quadrant houses. And in the language that he's using, you actually were able to see that he's trying to introduce some sort of conceptual distinctions between what one approach means versus the other.
1: Mm Mm-hmm yeah we can really see uh if we look across um the the works of the people writing from the late seven hundreds into the mid eight hundreds, including in Saul's book, we can see that they were wrestling with this problem of whole signs versus divisions, quadrant divisions um The trend over time was to just use quadrant houses and leave it at that, but we also see that there are attempts to solve this issue or when they give delineations, they will be very specific about, you know, if it's an angular sign, but it is moving away from the, the cusp, what I called withdrawing or retreating, um, that's a different meaning than if it is in an angular sign, but it's moving towards it. And uh, um, it's a big topic, we can't really um, go into it in too much detail here, but they were introducing vocabulary that shows they were absolutely aware of the problem they knew it was an issue many of them wanted to solve the issue and would give specific interpretations that showed they know they knew the difference and were yeah, trying yeah. to in practice give specific interpretations
0: right and that's really important because in rhetorius by the late hellenistic tradition by like the 5th or 6th or 7th century in the Greek tradition at the basically the end of the Roman Empire where the Roman Empire is in free fall, um, we see Rhetorius using and alternating back and forth between whole sign houses and quadrant houses, but it's not really clear like what sort of conceptual distinction he's using um, and how he's holding those two at the same time even though it's clear that he's trying to. And we sort of mm-hmm. see something similar with Firmicus. So it's interesting to see these early astrologers of the early medieval tradition doing something similar but also at the same time trying to be more explicit in expanding on some sort of explanation of what the conceptual distinction might be
1: yeah and this is going to be a big topic in my course where i'm going to develop my theory of how this is solved but they they did a couple of things one thing was uh they called whole signs houses by whole signs they called those houses by counting and Uh, They called quadrant divisions, they called those houses by division or houses by calculation. And you can see them explicitly use those phrases. Masha'allah uses it. Abu Mishra uses it. They know the difference, and they're giving different words to them so that you're not confused. Another thing they do is, like I said, they have different vocabulary for moving towards an axial degree and moving away from it um so they're trying to formalize this difference and explain what the difference is and uh you know probably they were all doing it a little bit differently i think it can be reconciled but it's exciting to see that these high level astrologers were not being haphazard uh, right they were making they were making choices we might not agree with every choice or, you know, not everyone is going to agree with every choice, but they were making deliberate choices because they knew this was an issue and wanted to explain it.
0: Yeah, and one of the ways that this is interesting is that because they were sometimes using different terms when they were refer- referring to Holstein houses versus quadrant houses, this is where we come back to the translation issue with the later Latin translators where how we were talking about at the beginning, sometimes they would just, instead of um, using distinct terms for the houses, sometimes they would sometimes just use the same term like you were talking about a cadent house, for example, for them always using the same term for a cadent house and how we could then see that this might be part of the reason why um, the whole discussion got collapsed down into just using quadrant houses because Mm -hmm when you just start using one term and you you get rid of some of those nuances between different terms that they might have been implicitly using to to refer to each approach that's why it might have gone
1: in one direction rather than another in the later tradition mhm we also see um in Abu Mashar in the the next my next book which will be the other required book for the course his book on um predictive techniques uh In one of the books, he explicitly addresses the fact that quadrant houses and whole sign houses do not always match, and how do you handle it when you do prediction, and he explicitly talks about intercepted signs, and when you have two cusps on the same sign, Uh, what do you do, especially, he says, when you have something like perfections, which is a sign-by-sign technique so he gives again he's he it's the first um it's the first explicit discussion i can think of of things like intercepted signs and uh but we'll have to wait and see what his answer is
0: okay we'll save that for for next time <laughs> so that's actually that that work is something you're you're almost finished translating and that's going to be your next published
1: book sometime here in the
0: next few months right
1: right it's about 2 weeks away from um from uh, publishing and um, and one one thing that comes out both in Abu Mashar and also in the Saul that I wanted to mention uh, which I again I we wouldn't have known unless we were looking at the Arabic is that when we talk nowadays about time Lords you and I and many other people we talk about a planet being activated or something being activated and I don't know who started using that word, someone in the last 20 years or so started doing that when we were talking about Time Lords. So Mm. imagine my surprise when I was translating both Saul and Abu Mashar, and when they talk about prediction, they use a word that means to activate or set into motion. Wow. So we can see that um, they were thinking along exactly the same lines, and that will also come out in the translations.
0: Okay, brilliant. Uh, That's really exciting.
1: So yeah, you'll have to join me again
0: when you publish that book um, here sometime in the next few months. Yeah, be my pleasure. Cool. All right. Um, Were there any major points? Like I'm trying to look through our outline to see if there's anything we meant to mention or touch on. Like there's a whole actually fascinating like historical point here about the interrelationship between the text of Rhetorius, like the last major Hellenistic astrologer that was written in Greek, and how that was transmitted and translated probably into Persian, and then how Saul is drawing heavily on that Persian translation of Rhetorius so that we just have huge chunks of Rhetorius that are all over Mm -hmm. Saul's work, which was really fascinating for me to see in this Mm -hmm. volume. Um, But I guess that's a whole topic in and of itself in some ways.
1: Yeah, it has to do with the fact that he's he's got much of, of part three of al Zagar's book on nativities in this book. And al Zagar is um, composed largely of Dorotheus and Ritorious, um, and in a very intricate organization of material. Um, so I don't know, maybe that would be better to save I mean, for later. I'm not sure. I mean, it's up to you how you,
0: how you feel. Do you want to go into it really quickly? Because that was I was never like, because you published a previous translation of that originally, um, the modern editor David Pingree attributed to Mashaallah, which is the book of Aristotle, and you translated that from from Latin a few years ago. And initially, you accepted Pingree's assumption that that was actually a lost work of Mashaallah, but you've since revised that, and that's a major thing that you talk about in this introduction. That was really crucial.
1: Yeah, the um in in Persian Nativities three, the second of my uh, natal volumes, I translated um, a book from Latin called the Book of Aristotle. Of course, it isn't really by Aristotle, but Pingree had argued that it was probably written by Mashaallah, and he believed that Theophilus of Edessa had a copy of Th- of Rhetorius, and personally handed that book to Mashaallah. And then Mashaallah uh, used that to write whatever the original of the book of Aristotle was, right? And so Pingree,
0: Pingry Arabic... could see Pardon? that there was Pingry could see that there was like huge chunks of Rhetorius that were in some of Mashaallah's works, and he assumed that because he was a contemporary with Theophilus and the Theophilus read Greek, that Theophilus must have had Rhetorius, and then he must have handed it to right. Mashaallah who then incorporated some of that into his arabic writings but you yeah
1: he he took essentially a lot what you might have thought of the long term transmission and condensed it down into a one to one handing off of a book between two people
0: right
1: which you know they would have been in the same city and so on but he never had any direct evidence for any of it but i i went along so i figured well he knows um,
0: yeah. And, well, and to re- be honest, like I always tend to accept a lot of Pingree's hypothesis, hypotheses. So over the past few years when I've heard you say that you didn't believe Pingree anymore, that that transmission had took place, I was initially skeptical of your rejection of his scenario because it just seemed like a perfectly reasonable scenario since we know that Theophilus and Masha'Allah were contemporaries. And we know that there's techniques that Masha'Allah uses that just look like they're straight out of rhetorias. So I just assumed Pingree was correct. But then I read your introduction, and the argument you make here about the actual true transmission is actually really compelling. And it was actually so compelling that I've completely changed my mind and accepted your argument at this point, because it's really well made when you compare it with the text that's in Saul that we see here.
1: Yeah, the 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 argument is simply this: that Masha'Allah has nothing to do with the book of Aristotle. The, the Arabic original of this book of Aristotle was not written by Masha'Allah. He had nothing to do with it. It was written by an older astrologer that we believe lived in the 600s, uh, maybe at the end of the Sasanian Empire, the Persians, named al anderzagar And uh, many people might have heard that name, al Zagar without really having read much by him, because allegedly not much exists. What I'm arguing is that no, what I translated as the book of Aristotle, that is by Al Andersagar. And one of the reasons, I give lots of reasons in the book, and one of the reasons is that Saul in about eleven passages quotes Alanderzagar, and it is word for word from the book of Aristotle. So um that in itself uh upends a claim that Pingree had made for many decades, but it's also fascinating because it opens up a new window into what were the older Persians up to. You know, they up uh, they must have had, you know, access to Rhetorius by other means and not from Theophilus of Edessa.
0: Yeah, and, and it just there's this whole rich history and tradition of astrology in Persia. From like the third century through the seventh or eighth century, that we know so little about because so many of the Persian texts were lost, but now we see um some of the traces of that coming through with works that actually may have survived but weren't recognized as such until until now,
1: yeah, yeah, until we had until someone would have translated this uh book of Sauls, no one would have noticed the repeated references that al Andr Zagar says this, and it's straight up out of the book, it's straight up the book of Aristotle. There is, abs- and the thing is also that Saul is constantly quoting Masha'Allah, but none of it overlaps with this al Andra Zagar stuff. So, um, it, uh, w- w- you know, one theory I think is now disproven, but it now opens up some intriguing possibilities because of Alander Zagar and makes Alander anderzegar a lot more important and intriguing a person.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, the big thing to me is that it creates much more of a continuity between the late Hellenistic tradition um, and then the Persian mm-hmm. tradition acting as an mm-hmm. intermediary, uh, intermediary where they've received not just Rhetorias from the end of the Hellenistic tradition, but they also have Parts of Valens, and they also have, of course, Dorotheus, which were translated into Persian. So that means you have those three really important Hellenistic texts—you uh, know, Valens, Dorotheus, and Rhetorius—translated into Persian, and then those translations get transmitted to the early first generation of astrologers writing in Arabic in the eighth and ninth centuries, which are Mashaallah and Saul. And this becomes the reason why, when even ten years ago, when you published the Red Book, when you pick up and start reading through Mashaallah and Saul. Their approaches look so similar in many ways to the Hellenistic astrologers that it's almost surprising, and it creates mm-hmm. much more continuity between the Hellenistic and medieval tradition than than you might expect, at least in the early medieval tradition.
1: Yeah, in a way, it puts the Persians really back into the picture, because if ever, if because otherwise, how would they? I mean, why would you have hired all of these Persian astrologers? if they didn't have access to the older books so in a way it allows you to answer some really obvious questions uh why would they have bothered to hire some of these persians if they didn't have the books <laughs> you know right. so um yeah i i like the way you put it the con the continuity now makes a lot more sense
0: yeah and and it also pushes the some of the changes back cuz Saul then becomes an interesting intermediary or intermediate figure because we can see him drawing a lot on the Hellenistic tradition and still doing a lot of things that are very similar to the earlier Hellenistic astrologers like Valens and Dorotheus and Rhetorius. But then we can see him also some new concepts starting to emerge like transfer of light and collection of light and other concepts like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas you note in the book that there's some horary concepts that haven't quite been developed yet or that they don't quite have words for that he's starting to describe but he just doesn't have a specific term for, and that it's not until mm-hmm. Abu Mashar, a few decades later, that we get the final sort of formulation of medieval astrology. In some ways, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. What I also like too in the in the book on um, longevity, um, he doesn't use strangely. He uses Alandar Zigar for almost everything else, or includes it. But he doesn't use Alandar Zagar's method for longevity. Instead, he uses to the Persian's. So um, he clearly had access to the works of to the Persian and decided he liked it better. Maybe he thought it worked better than what some of the other uh, authors were writing. So we're getting um, we're getting a peek at other people who were around at the time, others astrologers that we've never even heard of before, and he quotes them on various topics. I think that Saul, is, Saul and his times are really exciting, and that's one of the reasons I was just so excited to uh, to translate this book.
0: Definitely. Well, I'm really impressed by it. I think it's a huge accomplishment and a huge sort of landmark in terms of the revival of traditional astrology to have all of these works in one volume that's, you know, reasonably accessible and has just a huge amount of commentary in the footnotes and stuff from you to sort of like guide us through it and to expand on it and give some inter- some um, explanation based on your understanding of the language and everything else. Uh, yeah, so this is great. Congratulations on—I know it's been a long project for you because it's not just translating it for like four years, but also you literally had to teach yourself a, a new language in order to translate this book
1: it's there was a lot there was a lot to do and um a lot of editing a lot of you know checking every sentence to see if i could find it in dorotheus or rhetorius or al-andazigar or yeah it was a it was a long project and it feels good to be done and share it with people
0: yeah well it definitely paid off and we can see from this more than any even more than your translation of dorotheus the importance of having learned arabic and going back to the original language and how that does provide a very rich new perspective on some of the technical terms and different things like that. So, I'm really glad you did it. We have to thank I guess the like the Urania Trust for giving you that grant early on. Shout out to yeah. them. Um where can people find out more information about this book or order it?
1: Uh my website is bendykes.com. Bendykes is one word. Um but you can order it online at Amazon or other online uh bookstores. If you are not in the U.S., check the online bookstores in your country uh, because you don't want to pay expensive shipping from the U.S. It it should be available worldwide on Amazon and other online places.
0: Okay, excellent. And people can just do a search for The Astrology of Saul Ibn Bishr, and you should mm-hmm. find the book on Amazon or other fine bookstores everywhere. Um, yes, Awesome. And you'll be launching your course on medieval natal astrology at some point probably later this year?
1: Yeah, I'm hoping we'll see by the end of the summer, the fall, but I'm I'm really hoping to do it this year. Okay, cool. So people can check out your website which is bendykes.com for more
0: information about that as well as all of the other, you know, uh dozens of books that you will have probably translated before too long. Uh, I, th- I feel like every time I just stop paying attention or turn away and look back at you, like you've translated a new one or two volumes of some ancient astrological text or another.
1: Well, um, there's a lot more to come, and I, I, I definitely sympathize with people who feel, <laughs> feel like they haven't, they haven't even bought the last one, and I've already, have already done a few more. But, um, but um, I'm very appreciative of. Um, the people who buy the books and um and the uh, uh, the audio lectures and who are interested in the course it means a lot to me and and um I love doing it.
0: Yeah, and when it's literally funding your ability to keep doing these translations is you know people buying it and supporting your work, um and then you're able to just keep re- translating more things, learning more languages, and reviving more of the ancient astrological traditions. Brilliant. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you very much.
0: All right. Well, I guess that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Um, So thanks, everyone, for listening or watching. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'll put links to everything we talked about here in the description page for this episode on the astrologypodcast.com website. So go there, and I'll put a link to Ben's book as well as his website where you can find out more information. Uh, So that's it. So thanks everyone for watching and listening, and we'll see you next time.